Gospel of John. Um, before we jump in and begin to read, we're going to read uh, verses 1 through 13 of John chapter 7. I want to just start with a quick little uh, idea or concept that we see with regard to Jesus. And then we'll begin to take a look at how this plays into the life of Jesus. So I'll just say this. Jesus himself faced temptations to actualize, or I would even uh, add, accelerate his life's purpose by his own terms and influence of others. Yet he ultimately chooses God's timing and God's path. And I I think this is an important thing to consider because Jesus is God in the flesh, but he was also a human. Um, he, He didn't he added humanity to his divinity, to put it in the theological concept, that he is still God, he's still man. Though as man, he chose to walk by God, walk by obedience to God, trusting God, um, living in relationship to God, um, recognizing that there's going to be temptations and challenges that he faces just like you and I. But what we see over and over and over again with Jesus is that he's always turning back to the heart of the Father in order to guide him and direct him. And not only does this show us somewhat of an example to follow, but even far more than an example, this this is our path to salvation. This is, in other words, what Jesus did by way of following the Father becomes the means by which you and I discover and find and live into uh, wholeness and healing and forgiveness and new life. So um, what I want to do right now is I want to pray, and then we'll begin to read, and then we'll jump into all this passage has for us. So let's that. Jesus, uh, we thank you for your presence here in this place. We ask you right now that you'd open our our hearts, open our minds, open our lives to receive all that you have for us here this morning. Um, God, we want to lay aside our expectations, lay aside um, our concepts and our understanding of who you are, and to allow your word just to reshape and reformat our understanding and reframe our understanding of who you are so that, God, we can live um, faithfully for you, according to how you've shown yourself to be. So again, we just commit this time in your hands. We pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. All right, John chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. I'm going to read through it, and then we'll jump in. It starts off like this. Uh, After this, Jesus went about in Galilee, and he would not go about in Judea. So real quick, uh, Galilee and Judea, again, it's easy for us to, to read our Bibles and not really be super familiar with the geog- uh, geography of the arena or the area. Um, Galilee and Judea could not be more distinct from each other. Uh, Judea would have been like where Jerusalem was at, would have been the central hub. Think about it as being like Sacramento versus Santa Margarita, right? So that's kind of like the distinction here. Like you got Sacramento, which is like the main hub. Everybody hangs out there. It's the spot where everybody who's anybody goes and hangs out. It's hustling. It's bustling. It's a metropolis. It's a city. Judea is just kind of Sleepyville. Not much happening there. Not a lot of uh, excitement. It's not the place where if you are an aspiring preacher, that's going to become a viral sensation. It's not the place that you're going to go. But what we read here that Jesus went about Galilee. He hung out in that region of Galilee, um, and then he goes on to say he would not go about the Judea. And there's a reason. Because the Jews were seeking to kill him. So we get motivation. Number two, verse two, now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. Again, this was one of three major feasts, and I'll stop giving commentary, but we'll just read through it. But um, feast of booths was one of three major feasts that the Jews were all required to attend. Um, especially if you were a male. You were required at some point to make a travel to the city of Jerusalem, which is in where? You guys remember? 
Judea, right? You guys all knew that because um, I just said that. But G- uh, Jesus, would, as a male, would have been obligated, as all other males, to uh, 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 attend that particular feast in Judea. The feast of Booths, imagine, uh, it's kind of like a big monster camping trip where everybody would set up a tent, and they would live out in these tents for like a week. And there's a way of reminding them that God was faithful to them to carry them through the world, their wilderness journey. And even in the midst of not having a roof over their house, over their head, not having all the typical uh, means of survival, like living in a major city, um, God carried them through the wilderness, but also provided for them and took care of them. So this is one of the feasts that we were told a little bit about the geography and a little bit about the time of um, year in which this story takes place. Verse 3. Now, so the brothers said to him, this is Jesus's actual kin. Um, a lot of people might not be aware of the fact, but Mary, um, Virgin Mary, also had other children. So she didn't remain virgin forever. And this is a little bit of a small, minor, um, um, I don't know, dispute, I would say, that non-Catholics have with, with Catholics. I'm going to just leave it right there. Um, Mary was not always perpetually a virgin. She had other kids. We, we know that because this passage tells us right here. Mary also had other kids. But these were Jesus' brothers. So his brothers then said to him, leave here and go to Judea, metropolis. You and your disciples also, so that they might see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret. Secret meaning Galilee, right? Nobody knows who you are. It's like no one's bill. No one knows what you're doing in no one's bill. So you need to go to somebody's bill in order to be made and be seen as who you really are. Great, powerful, amazing. Verse 4. For no one does works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers had believed in him. Jesus then said to them, my time has not yet come. But your time is always here. The world cannot hate you. But it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil, or deeds are evil. Verse 8. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to the feast, for my time is not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. Verse 10. After this, his brothers had gone up to the feast. Then he also went up, but not publicly, but remained private or secret. The Jews were then looking around for him at the feast, saying, where is he? Because they saw his brothers there. So they're assuming, you know, most people who travel in caravans, so in their mind, they're like, we see his brothers, we don't see Jesus. Where's Jesus? Jesus has to be here, because his brothers are here, they travel in caravans, where's Jesus? So they're already kind of suspicious that Jesus might be there. And then it goes on to say, verse 12, and there was much muttering about him among the people. Some said, he's a good man, Jesus. Uh, others said, no, he's actually leading people astray. He's a conspiracy theorist. Verse 13. I that's my addition, right? Um, we need to ban him from TikTok. All right, verse 13. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. So this is this. This is the word of the Lord. All right, you guys ready to get to work? Let's take a look at this. So before we even jump into even thinking about this, I, I want to just kind of pause and a little bit, just kind of like note some of the actual things that Jesus himself had experienced. I think it's just kind of like a, a, an interesting like little, I don't know, survey. Thinking about Jesus as a human being and the types of experiences that he himself actually had faced and had gone through. It's just kind of worth noting. Number one, let's take a look at a handful of these in bullet points. Number one, Jesus was, was lonely. He experienced loneliness. I mean, imagine Jesus hanging around. And think about loneliness in the context, not just being alone, but, but being lonely. Um, Jesus is hanging around a lot of people. 
But these people literally don't get Jesus. They don't get him. They don't understand him. Jesus can talk to them periodically about certain things, and they're just like, what are you talking about? I mean, there's an occasion where Jesus is actually with his disciples, and they ask him, or he asks them, who, who do people say that I am? And then some say, well, you know, you're a prophet, you're a great teacher. And, and then Jesus turns to Peter and says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, I think you're the Messiah, the Son of God. Jesus is like, great, you answer correctly. And immediately Peter, Jesus begins to talk to Peter and the rest that he, I'm going to go to Jerusalem, you know, Remember, in the center of Judea, I'm going to go to the metropolis. I'm going to preach the word there. I'm going to ultimately be crucified and put to death. And then Peter pulls Jesus aside and starts rebuking him. So think about that. Think about sharing your heart with somebody, what you're facing, the types of challenges that you're going through. And immediately they do not get you. And not only that, but they begin to offer you advice that's completely opposite than what you know you're supposed to live into. How, does that, how would that make you feel? Make you feel extremely isolated. Lonely. This is Jesus. Number one, we see he's lonely. Number two, he's, it kind of leads into the other one. He's always being misunderstood. Always being misunderstood. People are always just misunderstanding, misrepresenting, um, create, ridiculing him, mocking him, spinning what he says, twisting what he has to say as a means to justify their hatred against Jesus. So he's always being misunderstood. And again, imagine yourself in a place where you're, everything you say is always being twisted, spun, taken out of context to the point where you're just like, that's not what I said. That's not what I meant. That's not how I said it. And it doesn't matter. Like that, that immediately becomes kind of the new narrative that gets spun about you. This is Jesus, lonely, always misunderstood. And thirdly, we also see that there was this pressure upon Jesus to perform or to conform in some cases. Think about this. Um, his own brothers are kind of pulling Jesus aside like, you need to go to uh, you know, the, the metropolis. You need to go to the major area, the major city, Jerusalem, and you need to get your show on the road. And you have to do this if you're going to be somebody. And it actually tells us that, you know, again, they did not believe that Jesus really was who he claimed he was. So what their motivations were, again, it's left to speculation. My, my guess would be they're basically just trying to push Jesus out in the open to say, just take your show on the road, let people know who you truly are, become a viral sensation, and, and let's, let's get this thing going forward. Because if you really are who you claim you are, then you're going to want to get a massive following. That's not just in, in Smallsville, that's in big metropolis. That's where you really want to be. You don't want to be here uh, around the Sea of Galilee. You want to be in the place where everybody is at. You want to go viral. That's basically what they're uh, pressuring Jesus to move into. This is interesting because, and again, we live in a culture now, I would say, what social media has done, social media has taken, I think, our tendency to turn extremely inward on ourselves, um, to become, to be narcissists, and it's kind of like turned it into this, like, this virtue. The more narcissistic you are, the nobody's going to go around and be like, hey, I'm narcissistic. Everyone look at me. We do it in more subversive type of, types of ways. But what social media has done is created a platform where everybody can be, become their own narcissist. Why, why do we do this? I think part of that, what it's done, is it's created this world of idolatry. I like to even think of it as an idolatry pump. It's an idolatry pump. It's pumping out, creating, um, manufacturing idolatry. What's the idolatry fixed on? It's fixed on this sense of... Um, we input ourselves, but outcomes, self-worth, image over authenticity, outward success, comparison models, right? I mean, the idea is that what ends up happening, I'm sure all of us have been in that trap where we look at various uh, people that we know on social media, and we find ourselves feeling this ache of, like, jealousy. 
of uh, lack of self-worth. Like, I, I don't mount to anything because look what they have and look what I don't have. And it creates this world of anxiety. In fact, there are sociological studies that have shown, that especially on this other side of COVID, where after the past two and a half years that people were literally just on their phones nonstop over and over and over again, it created a deeper level of angst and anxiety more so than ever, which has led to self-medication, in some cases suicide. Um, and it has not been good for the mental health of human beings, especially in the West. Why? What's going on here? It's a pressure to perform or to conform. And we're dying in the midst of this idolatry pump. Again, Jesus faced this same type of pressure to perform. His own brothers are pressuring him. You've got to do this. You've got to act this way. The crowds of people are saying, you've got to do this. You've got to perform this. You've got to act this particular thing out. So Jesus felt this same type of pressure that we oftentimes find ourselves in the midst of. And yet, on the other side of that, what oftentimes ends up happening for people that are in the midst of that idolatry pump is even though we never really obtain what we are truly longing for, which is a sense of affirmation or self-recognition or validating our self-worth, what ends up happening, we find ourselves in greater levels of exhaustion and emptiness. More so than ever before. And it all boils back upstream to the sense of like, I've got to perform. I've got to prove my worth. I've got to prove my value. Jesus, no doubt, faced these same types of pressures. Uh, next thing we see is that Jesus also faced betrayal. His own disciples that were supposedly loyal to him also at some point would end, the, end up eventually, ultimately betraying him. Lastly, we see that this sense of hatred or disdain. We are told in chapter 7, verse 1, that there are these group of people that actually wanted to kill Jesus. Now, again, why? This kind of plays in the larger storyline of the life of Jesus. Jesus is going around preaching, communicating the good news. He himself is the good news. But prior and in, in, uh, accompaniment of that good news also comes bad news. And the bad news is that we as human beings are broken. The way Jesus would actually describe it in the passage that we just read, that all of us are, are subject and are slaves to bad deeds, evil deeds. That we find ourselves maybe wanting or longing to be good people or to be better people or to act in ways that are not like disdaining or horrible. But the fact is we are trapped in these loops, these cycles, these systems where we can't break free. It's what the Bible would describe as sin. It's like these, this kind of complexity, this world of sin, enslavement to sin. But Jesus comes to rescue us from this stuff. But as a result of that, he recognizes that he's got to communicate this good news, and that ultimately is going to make a lot of people angry and frustrated to the point where they end up kind of putting to death. So I, I thought it would be good to just kind of pause and think about what were some of the things that Jesus had experienced himself. Now let's jump back in and look a little bit more deeper at the text. Um, what were some of the things that Jesus ultimately exemplified? Because I think what we read here in the story of the life of Jesus is that he actually exemplifies or models this whole idea of trusting God, even in the midst of pressure to conform or to perform or to act in a certain way that is in alignment with another group or agendas, a uh, group or identity, a uh, group of people, uh, agenda or identity for him, that Jesus basically breaks ranks from that, says, I'm going to do what the Father tells me to do. So there's three things that I notice within the passage here that Jesus himself exemplifies. So number one, we see that Jesus exemplifies actually following God's lead. So take a look again at verse uh, one there in chapter seven. We're told that Jesus stays in that region of Galilee as opposed to going to Judea. It would have made sense for Jesus to go to Judea. 
That was where all the people were at. If Jesus was really, his aim was to become popular or to create a massive movement around himself, it would make sense. You go to where all the people are at. You go to where the popularity is. You go to where the marketing gurus can basically take your show and exemplify it and make it amazing. But Jesus is like, that's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to create a viral sensation over myself. I'm here to do the will of the Father, which involves a mission to rescue human beings that are slaves to misdeeds and evil and sin. So a couple of things that we see, number one, um, is I think about this idea of Jesus following God's lead. Um, there's a little bit of a gap here between chapter 6 and chapter 7. Um, and I'll, I'll tell you real quickly what it is, because w- w- many of the like little... Um, I don't know, uh, date markers that we see with regard to the life of Jesus. So in chapter 6, we see that Jesus was in the region of Judea for Passover. So then it skips forward about six months between chapter 6 and chapter 7. Now we're told that Jesus is in this particular region um, of Galilee, thinking about going to Judea during the Feast of Tabernacles. So this is about a six-month window of time. So a lot of scholars kind of speculate, well, what did Jesus do during those six months? You know, Sometimes scholars do that. They try to figure out. Um, the text doesn't really say anything as to what Jesus did. So this is where a little bit of speculation comes in. I think it's kind of like valid speculation that what Jesus may have done during this particular period of time is he was not with crowds. He wasn't necessarily going around healing people. He was definitely not mingled up in politics. He was definitely not trying to build a framework to kind of promote his own agenda. He was hanging out with 12 dudes day and day. Spending time with them, eating meals with them, talking with them about life, training them in the ways of God. In other words, it was grunt work that nobody saw, nobody even thought about, nobody even would have considered. But it was nonetheless central to Jesus' mission. We call it discipleship. Jesus was just hanging out. It was just common work. Everyday, normal life. Think about how many times you and I as human beings... We want to be a part of something that's spectacular, whether it be like a church or a church movement or some form of political movement. We want to be part of something that's spectacular. What about those things that are not spectacular? They're just common. Those things oftentimes get overlooked. What about like the mom that just shows up every single day having to change dirty diapers and feed a child and deal with their own like stuff that they're dealing with or the husband that might just show up at a job or a woman that might just show up at a job? Again, equal opportunity. It doesn't matter. Like the point of the matter is it's just the, the daily grunt work of just showing up, doing something, being present, being faithful to God. Those are things that we just see that Jesus probably during this season of time was doing. But that's part of being faithful to God. He was training up and raising up these young men, we call apostles or disciples, that would then, after Jesus rose again from the dead, would then be the main receivers of the Holy Spirit that would then go forth and build this thing of the church that Jesus himself had founded. The day-to-day normal routine of life. This is what they were called to do. So I think it's important to just kind of pause and think about the priority of Jesus is at least during this period of time, in obeying God or following God's lead, was just being a part of the normal warp and woof of life. That was nothing extraordinary. But nonetheless, was part of God's game plan for Jesus' life. Second thing I noticed is Jesus' patience, all right? Jesus was not in a hurry. And if you notice anything about the life of Jesus, you begin to realize that there's occasions where people are wanting to push Jesus's life forward a little bit, like, Jesus, we need you here fast, quick. And Jesus is like, okay, whatever. You know, the point of the matter is Jesus is not in a hurry. He lived literally this unhurried, non-anxious life. 
You never see Jesus running around frantically, freaking out the way we oftentimes can, right? The way I can, right? Um, Jesus has, there's a sense of control that Jesus has. And part of it, I think, is combined with the fact that he's just following God's lead. He's waking up in the morning, Father, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to live into this day? Who are the people that you've put into my life that you want me to invest in? Who are those that you want me to show love and kindness and compassion to? Jesus just lived his life day by day in this unhurried, non-anxious type of a pathway because he was following God's lead. And then lastly, I noticed Jesus' humility. Again, we see that Jesus is constantly being nudged to make his name great. But Jesus is constantly committed to saying, no, my job is to do what God has called me to do. In some cases, that might mean to just be chill. I mean, think about the humility. This Humility is a virtue that I would largely say is non-existent in our culture. Because it's either distorted to kind of be viewed as nothing more than a weakness. Like, uh, being humble is equivalent to just being a weak sold, weak human being, spineless human being. And I, would, and I would suggest that that's a distortion, that's not an accurate description. Or oftentimes, humility can kind of become a means of virtue signaling. Again, and think about, we've all seen those, you know, viral TikTok, Instagram videos where someone is like filming themselves going to give a sandwich to someone. It's like, you know, it has some cute music in the background and we watch these things and we're like oh my gosh this is amazing and then part of me like i've i'm and part of it's probably i'm just straight up a cynical human being and i'm judgy of everything all right i'm just putting my cards on the table i watch these things and i'm like why is this guy filming himself what the heck like anyone could do this like what why is this guy filming himself i mean it's different when someone else films you but when you're the dude filming yourself you're like i'm gonna go give a hundred bucks this homeless dude and it's just like dude you're just signaling your virtue come on like it's not humility it's pride you want the whole world to see how amazing you are so again cynical rant over but the point that i would make is jesus was filled with this deep sense of humility um i want to jump on to the very next thing because jesus not only exemplified this life of following god's lead wherever god leads jesus followed secondly we see jesus was deeply devoted in obedience to God. And we get this from verses 3 through 4. We see Jesus interacting with the voices of other people that are saying, you need to go do this. Jesus is devoted to say, I'm going to follow the voice of what God is calling me to do over the voice of others. Again, even though those voices may be convincing, Jesus recognizes I have to be part of what I'm doing, what God has assigned for me to do. And what God has not assigned for me to do is what you are asking me to do. So this takes a great level, and I'll give you some practical tips in just a moment how to discern what God is leading us to do, but this is what we see Jesus doing. And, and part of that is not only obeying the voice of God over the voice of others, but it also involves speaking truth through, the, even though it's uh, potentially offensive. And we get this in verse 7. Take a look at this. Jesus then speaks, and I'll just read it, um, verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify that its works are evil. This is, this is Jesus himself speaking. It's part of the message, the larger message that Jesus himself is speaking. But part of that message involves Jesus having to speak the hard, maybe even harsh or painful, maybe even potentially offensive truth that human beings, there's a fatal flaw that each one of us possess. And it's that we, we, we're committed to our evil deeds. That's a hard thing for us to swallow, especially in the world in which we live in today that wants so desperately to believe. And we listen to the voices that are ubiquitous in our culture through 
popular influencers and people that have extremely well-platformed shows and whatnot, that there's a spark of the divine in every one of you. I want to suggest you please listen carefully to me. That is totally untrue. There's not a spark of divine in each one of us. God loves us. God created us so that we would mirror him. But what's happened as human beings, we've drifted away from God's design, God's intentions. And as a result of that, we are left with means and influences in our lives, whether it be from our own bent desires or from the other means of influence around us, that we become these desire junkies. And those desires then begin to drive us. And those desires then lead us to misdeeds or actions that are destructive, that are actually broken, that actually play into the very means of brokenness in our culture around us. So if you would like to think of it this way, that God is a God of creation. Everything Satan and demonic beings and evil in this world are up to are seeking to undermine the work of God's creation. So if you want to think of it this way, there is an active force of non-creation or uncreation at work in our culture, in our society, in our world today. So anything that is not working towards act of creation that mirrors and reflects the heart of God the Father is ultimately and inevitably, inevitably going to become an act of anti-creation. So if you think of it this way, Jesus invites us to become part of new creation. But this inward bentness in our soul is always towards anti-creation. And this is what Jesus would say, but our deeds are evil. But here's the, the beauty of this is that Jesus has compassion on his creation. He loves us. His aim is to heal our bent and broken hearts, to bring forth, to breathe forth new life over our souls so that we become new people with new desires, new longings, new aspirations, new dreams, new hopes. All of this comes as a gift from God. So what we see is that Jesus is living his life in complete, direct obedience to God. Not only if that means um, receiving the voice of God over the voice of others, but also speaking truth where it can oftentimes potentially be offensive. And lastly, what we see with regard to the life of Jesus, verse 10, is that Jesus ultimately waited for God's appointed timing in all of these things. He trusted God's timing over all things. So we inevitably see that Jesus ends up in Judea. So Jesus does end up going to the region of Jerusalem for the Feast of Tabernacles, but it's on God's time frame, not the time frame of his brothers, not on the time frame of those that are urging him to conform to their own wishes and aspirations. Jesus ends up doing really what they had hoped for, but it's in God's time. And I think there's an interesting lesson with regard to this as well, that a lot of the stuff that we find ourselves wrestling with in life um, are not necessarily things that God is saying, I want to withhold from you, but God is saying, I want you to have this in the timing that I've given for you to enter into this. Um, several years ago, I, and I'll tell you a quick little story. Um, there was a time that my wife and I were actually going to elope and get married in Austria. It's a totally random story. I'm not going to go into all of it. But um, so we had gone to Austria, and our, my, my hope was, our hope was, is that we were going to elope and then do that. And then we went through all of this process of trying to, like, deal with, I don't know, the Austrian government to make it legal and yada, yada, yada. And it was just an absolute headache. I remember probably one of the very first times in my life like in this moment, my wife had not, Sherry had not gotten there yet. She's still my girlfriend. And I remember sitting in this room and being absolutely overwhelmed with anxiety. It's just like I'd never experienced anxiety to that level before. And I just remember feeling my heart racing, my pulse rising. I was like, what the heck is going on here? I just kind of want to 
like die. Like, I don't know how to deal with this emotion that I'm feeling right now. And I remember reading this um, devotional. It's called Streams in the Desert. You guys ever heard of that, Streams in the Desert? It's a really cool old school devotional. It's awesome. And it was actually on the 4th of July. Actually, I think it was July 3rd, but I was reading a day ahead. So, but it was 4th of July entry. And I, I want to read a quick little segment to you. It starts off with this. And I remember being there in the room, I was sitting down. We had like this like little group devotion. It was kind of like a, a Christian camp thing. So, um, afterwards when everyone left, I was like, you know, like languishing in my own anxiety, not knowing what was going on. I was probably having a panic attack, but I didn't know what a panic attack was at the time, but I was just sitting there like, freaking out. And then I remember opening just as much little energy that I had. I I opened this little devotional because it was like books back in there. Like, you know, we didn't have Kindles or like apps and stuff like that. But the point of the matter, I opened this book and I start reading it. And the passage that it was pointing to is Habakkuk chapter two, verse three. I'll read to you. This is it. The vision is yet for an appointed time. Though it tarry, wait for it, because it will surely come, it will not tarry. And this is, this is God speaking through Habakkuk. Like, hey, you have a vision and it's a good vision, but it's not for now. It's for another time. Just wait for it. The time will come. You will enter into it. And I remember at that moment, just this, this thought came over me. Like, maybe I'm pushing for something that God is saying, not now, my son. It's a good thing, but not now. And he goes on to say, I'll just read this. There's a guy named Adam Sloman. I have no idea who this guy is. But he wrote this little book. And in this particular little book, and I'm reading a little bit of the segment here. Um, he says, the, the, this guy, Adam Stoneman, writes about how this person was led into the Lord's treasure house. Among many other wonders he re- reveled, or he revealed was to him this little, little statement that said, the, 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 the delayed blessings office. It's kind of a mouthful. The delayed blessings office. So in the story, someone walks in. There's like, a, there's a little office. This is delayed blessings office. All right. You guys following so far? All right. All right. He goes on to say, um, in, in his writings, says, delays are not denials. I remember reading that being like, oh man, delays are not denials. Then it goes on to say, men would pluck their mercies green when the Lord would have them ripen. That sentence hit me, floored me. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm trying to pick fruit and it's still green. God said, let it stay on there. It needs life. It needs to ripen. It needs to become beautiful. If you eat that now, it's going to taste sour in your mouth. It will not be all that intended. I love you, Brian. I'm for you. I'm with you. I'm going to bless you. Just trust me. Enter into this moment of delay and I will take care of you. And it just literally liberated my soul. It was that moment right then in that room. I literally felt like I was set free from this chamber of anxiety that I found myself in the midst of. It all boils back to trust God's timing. All right. I want to real quickly move on from that to just kind of think about what are some of the different ways in which you and I, I think, top maybe three ways in which we are tempted to take take matters into our own hands. And I'll just kind of go through these real quickly. Number one, I think relational. Uh, there's a sense where often I was like, that's what I was dealing with. I was like, I want to get married. I think it's a good thing. God's provided an amazing woman for my life. And I want that now because what's better than to have this now in Austria? It's like we're literally in the Alps. It's absolutely beautiful. I mean, we're talking snow-covered mountains. We're on this incredible lake. I'm literally at a castle. I'm like, this is, there's nothing better. Like, what better for a king and a queen than to get married at a castle? Like, this is literally fairy book, all right? It wasn't meant to be. And God says, I I got something else for you. So we can oftentimes, out of loneliness or wanting to 
move something along a little bit faster. We, we grasp, we compromise our principles, we lower our standards, or worse yet, we just settle. And I see people do this so oftentimes, especially people like in their mid-20s, 30s, early 40s, where the ache of loneliness is real. I just want to say to you, I get it. I've been there. I know what it feels like. It's hard, especially when you have people around you that are getting married or going on round one and having kids, and you're like, I still don't even have a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Like, what's wrong with me? I want to tell you, there's nothing wrong with you. You are not flawed. You are not broken. You're not messed up. You're not lost. Like, God, to trust Jesus. I don't want to sell you a bill of goods because maybe there are things you got to work on. I'm backtrack a little bit here. Maybe there are things you got to work on. Maybe there's some relational stuff you got to kind of you got to buckle down and think about and get some counsel and wisdom into your heart. But I want to just be really clear. Like, like the the fact of the matter is, is that God is for you. He truly, truly is for you. He's got a plan for you. Do not lower your standards. Do not settle for less. Do not pluck uh, green fruit when God intends for it to ripen more. Don't compromise your principles. I see this so oftentimes people will compromise their principles in order to escalate or move forward into a relationship. And then they will always end up regretting that at some other point later on down in their lives. Secondly, vocational. Oftentimes the impatience of waiting for the right job opportunity or promotion. Uh, we can oftentimes adopt this win at all costs approach where as a result, people might lose themselves. They might can slip into cynicism. Um, they might take matters in their own hands. And that oftentimes leads to compromises later on down the road that ends up bringing about a lot of brokenness in their life. Or they can devote themselves entirely to their job and every other part of their life that has value ultimately just ends up going down the tubes. Um, they, they become so devoted to their career, their vocation, that they, they lose the relationships that they have had in their lives, whether it be with their kids or their wife or whatever, or their husband. But the point of the matter is, uh, these are ways in which we can oftentimes take matters in our hand. Lastly is financial. Um, and again, we live in a culture today that things are kind of in this level of inflation. Again, I can buy five items at Trader Joe's and it's like 50 bucks. I'm like, how in the world did this happen? This is unbelievable. I can't believe how expensive things are nowadays. A bag of chips at Costco the other day. I'm not joking. It was like a pound and a half for 10 bucks. I'm like, chips? Are you kidding me? This is ridiculous. What's going on here? So I get it. Financial stuff can become massive in our lives. We need money, but oftentimes this can lead to sort of a, I would describe it as like a breaking bad approach life where yes there may be some good things in our lives that we need that need funding so we take approaches that are unethical and we like walter white break bad we make decisions that even though we might be good at particular something that's something that we're good at ultimately is a compromise of our own character our own values our own principles and we end up going down a pathway that's dark and despairing these are ways in which we can oftentimes take matters in our hand lastly i want to just talk real quickly about practical ways to discern god's plan and timing um, number one, again, some of these things, I guarantee you guys have heard some of these things before because they're not new. Um, for many of us, we don't need this. I would almost even add this is part of our number one problem as, as people living in our culture here today. We long for, we look for, we gravitate towards, we idolize, I would even add, the novel. I want a new trick. I want a new life hack. I want a new life coach. I want a new like template or I want a new technique. And that newness, I would suggest to you, is, is part of the problem. It will not help you. Most of us we need to simply go back to the ancient practices, the things that have been tried and true for 5,000 years. 
And this, this is what these are. There's, there's just thousands of year old practices that people have done as a means of discerning the heart and the mind of God in order to obey him for who he is. Uh, number one, prayer, scripture reading. Again, seeking God first, going to scripture, letting scripture speak to us, reveal to us the heart of God. Number two, wise counsel. This is, you know, finding a spiritual mentor or a pastor, someone who's alive with the spirit of God. Again, this could be somebody the same age, but they're alive with the spirit of God. They have the spirit of God just oozing out of them. Like tap in and ask them to pray for you. Ask them to just get, hey, do you have any word that you feel like God is maybe speaking to you that would be helpful for me to discern the heart and the mind of God in the midst of these relational, vocational, financial challenges that I find myself navigating? Thirdly, uh, make the decision to trust God. Um, there's some, sometimes there's cases where you just have to make a decision. You can get stuck in kind of like this, this grid of like, oh my gosh, I got so many uh, choices to make and you're just become stuck. Sometimes you need to just make a decision that's not going to, that's going to be the, like the least damaging or destructive and then step into it, but keep an open hand. Does that make sense? So as you're walking into this thing, you're following these breadcrumbs. God, where are you going to lead me next? But you keep an open hand so that if this relationship ends up not being the relationship, you've not invested your heart entirely into this thing to where now you're going to just drown in despair when God says, no, this is not what I want for you. Or this is something I want for you, but I want you to only be in it for three months. That's part of my story too as well. But, but then, but no longer. You're, yes, you're going to suffer heartbreak. Yes, it will be painful, but it will be the means that will precipitate into a whole new avenue of life that I have for you as well. Um, th- fourthly, pay attention to peace. Like, again, I would, I would say this is, this, is, this is a very subjective one, but I think it's one that should be identified as well. Like, when you think about moving forward with some of these decisions, is your heart filled with a deep sense of anxiety and despair and worry? Um, or is there a sense of like I, I, the, the peace of God that passes understanding is something that's carrying me in the midst of this? It doesn't make sense. I don't get it. It doesn't. Everything on paper looks like it should not be the case, but I have a deep sense of peace that this is where I'm supposed to be going. Step into that with a sense of opening, open hand that maybe God, this is maybe this is where God wants me to go. I'm going to step into it. Maybe it's not where God wants me to go, but I'm going to hold it with open hand. For, uh, fifthly, watch um, for open and closed doors. Like. Be watchful. Be watchful. Constantly be aware. Invite other people into your life to be watchful alongside you. And then lastly, remember God's character. This is probably the most important. Remember God's character. It's really easy. The children of Israel, as they traveled through the wilderness, it was really easy for them to gravitate towards a position where they forgot the character of God. And when they forgot the character of God, this is when their longings began to overtake them. And they were like, we want to go back to Egypt. We're hungry for some good food that the Egyptians created for us and we but they forgot they were slaves to pharaoh they forgot that and it was what what was missing was their understanding of the character of god that god was for them he loved them so all right that's that's that the last thing i want to just finish on is just putting all of this in bigger context i want to be really careful to just kind of point out it's really easy to look at this story that we just read here in john chapter 7 and simply chalk it up to nothing more than this incredible like moralistic teaching on how look how jesus lived this exemplified life of trusting god therefore you go ahead and do the same and i want i i do not want to leave you with that because i think that would be selling the gospel message short what we see and why we see jesus was deeply devoted to the heart of God ultimately is because it was part of the mission that he came to seek and save those who were lost. 
To put it in another context, Jesus was deeply devoted to following God, following God's ways, because he knew that in order to get to that place of rescuing us as human beings required Jesus coming to this world, not doing what he wanted, not doing what the crowds wanted, not doing what his brothers wanted, not doing what seemed conventional, but doing what might have seemed countercultural. It's what God wanted him to do. And it ultimately would cost him everything. Everything, his own life, his own dignity, his own respect. Jesus on the cross. Why? Because he loves you. He's for you. His aim is to bring you and I into a right relationship with himself. You and I who are stuck in this feedback loop of brokenness, of misdeeds. Listen to how Jesus would have said this earlier in John chapter 3, verse 18. He says, this is the verdict, that light has come into the world, but people have loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. This is the same statement that Jesus said right here that we just read in chapter 7. Later on, Paul the Apostle would say this in Colossians chapter 1. He says, once you were alienated from God and you were enemies because of your evil deeds. But then he goes to say, but God, who has reconciled you through Jesus' death, to present you holy, without blemish, and free of accusation in his sight. How could this possibly be? Because Jesus was faithful to the mission of God. To put this in the bigger context, God so loved the world that he gave his son. And Jesus was deeply, passionately devoted to following God. Not fulfilling his own deeds, his own desires, his own longings, his own dreams, but to fulfilling what the Father intended for him to fulfill, which at its very core is to bring you and I who have gone far adrift into a right relationship with him so that we, in discovering the grace that then rescues and saves us, then we can find ourselves liberated to follow the way of God. And what does that look like? It looks like you and I going back into our lives and being faithful devoted followers of Jesus. And what does that look like? It looks like loving God. It looks like loving our neighbor. It looks like doing good. In other words, it looks. imagine a community filled with people devoted to loving God, loving one another, and doing good. Imagine it, because one day, the entire world will be filled with a community of people like that. Right now, we, we don't get that. That's not the world we live in. We live in a world filled with selfishness and war and despair, and injustice, and racism, and nationalism, and people that are deeply devoted to all forms of idolatry, and all forms of misshapen identities. And as a result of that, we live in a world where people will kill another human being, shed the blood of another human being, as a means of protecting their own little empire. But one day, this world will become the kingdom of our God. And this is the hope that we long for. How and why? Because Jesus is faithful to all that God called him to be. We should be thankful for that. Let's all stand and we'll pray over us. And then we will scatter going back into the world to be part of what God has called us to be. So, Jesus, we thank you right now for your devotion to the Father, to doing what he has called you to do, to be obedient in all things. Even though you faced loneliness, Temptation, trial, hardship, hatred. You faced people's opinions in ways that are just violating and destructive 
and hurtful and painful. And you remain faithful to the Father. We thank you for that, Jesus, because that was the means of our salvation. That was the means of our rescue. So, God, right now, I pray that you would take our hearts, no matter what condition they're in, whether they're filled with joy, we want to go back in the world and just live for you, or they're filled with just a lot of darkness. Meet us where we're at. And help us in those areas that we need help. And if you're here this morning, and maybe you're not a follower of Jesus yet, and you would like to follow Jesus, maybe there's something that was resonant in the message here that spoke to your heart, and you need to just trust Jesus. You need to confess your sin to him. The invitation for you would be to just call upon the name of the Lord. In other words, just ask God right now, God, show yourself to me. God, forgive me of my sin. God, help my heart to trust you. Scripture is pretty clear that those that call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. God's aim and intention is to help us in our lives of pain and hardship and difficulty and burden and to carry us and to carry our burden and to give us life. So God, I pray right now for any here that need you in those types of creative, life-giving ways. God, meet them right where they're at. And God, as we go back into this world, empower us to live in ways that just show forth the beauty and the goodness, the justice, the kindness, the generosity, the gentleness, the humility of Jesus, our Lord. And we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen.